Good evening y bienvenidos a Chicago Tonight Latino Voices. I'm Alex Hernandez of Noticias Univision Chicago. We cherish every weekday morning at 5 and 6. Thank you for sharing part of your weekend with us on the show tonight. Waikou County is known as the worst neighbor in the country when it comes to a certain type of air pollution. An ongoing shortage of medication used to treat asthma patients gets worse. What's being done about it and what you should know. Hundreds gather for the funeral of Chicago police officer Andres Vasquez Lasso. The Pilsen Food Pantry is preparing to move. We have the story of its new home. And the landscapes and the people of Puerto Rico are the focus of an art show making a rare visit to Chicago from the island. All that coming up, but our first story tonight, efforts to clear the air in Cook County. That's right after this. Chicago Tonight, Latino Voices, is made possible in part by the support of these donors. Cook County is the worst neighbor in the country. That is, when it comes to smoke. That's according to new data from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The health damaging smoke can travel hundreds of miles to neighboring counties, including up north to Wisconsin. Now a new plan allows the federal agency to place stricter limits on large polluters and reduce emissions by 2026. Joining us now with more are Philip Boda, faculty member at the University of Illinois at Chicago, Gina Ramirez, Midwest Outreach Manager at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Dulce Ortiz, co-chair of Clean uh, Power Lake County. I want to welcome all of you for joining us today. But I want to start with you, uh, Gina. Thank you for being here. Uh, what did you take away from this recent report? Was it surprising? It wasn't very surprising growing up on the southeast side of Chicago, which is a border town to Indiana, which ha houses the BP refinery, which is one of the largest refineries in the Midwest and in the country. And so I kind of experience that interstate pollution day in and out and see the health disparities that come with that, um, experience the foul odors, the, the you know, asthma rates that are abominable and, um, you know, our air monitors are, are registering some of the worst air quality in the state. So I wasn't too surprised. How about you, Dulce? Same as Gina, um, sadly, um, we are not surprised by this. Over in our area, which is the Lake County area, um, you know, we've been disproportionately impacted by pollution. We're an environmental justice community. Uh, majority um, Latinos, um, you know, immigrant Latinos. And so um, it's really disheartening, but same as Gina, it seems like the story uh, doesn't really change when you go through EJ communities. Um, we also have um, one of the um, rates of asthma here in um, Waukegan Public Schools is that one out, of, one out of three children suffer from asthma or asthma-like symptoms, which is a lot higher than the national rate. And so again, um, right. it's not surprising, um, but it's also very disheartening. Now that you mentioned that, Dulce, and you were just talking about Waukegan and, and the high asthma rates in children. How has uh, air pollution played a role in the community? 
mean, air pollution has really severely impacted our health. Um, we did have a coal plant uh, right in our lakefront. Uh, we were uh, we worked very hard um, to have a just transition, and so um, we did uh, transition that coal plant out um, last year in June. But I think the damage has been done. I think that along with the coal plant, which was one of the biggest polluters, and then the smog from Cook County, this is why every year Lake County was rated um, in regards to the air quality with an F. Uh, we've had one of the worst air qualities, and of course, that's going to come up in um, the health impacts of the overall community members. And um, you know, I used to do presentations in middle school to educate um, our kids about a coal plant in our lakefront, which I didn't know existed until I, I just thought it was a factory right. until someone educated me on it. And every time I do a presentation, I would ask the kids in the classroom, you know, how many of you have friends or family members that have asthma and about 98% of the hands would go up. And obviously we know that um, that is not normal. And we know that the um, Environmental Protection Agency should right. do more to protect communities like ours. Definitely, we never wanna hear that children are suffering from asthma, definitely. Philip, uh, going with you, what's, what's leading to all these air pollution in Chicago and uh, neighboring areas? Thank you, Alex. One of the things which we really have to think about is that smog is ostensibly atmospheric ground level ozone. And so facilities don't create ozone. What they do create are the precursors to ozone. And the EPA has identified this as primarily focused on nitrogen oxides. And so when we're really thinking about how to mediate this and how to improve our communities, it's addressing the issue that in the southwest side, we have a higher concentration of rail yards than LA County. We have more trucks going in and out of those areas. Those trucks cause pollution. Right. How, um, can you share briefly with us how the Good Neighbor Plan will work and how it might uh, actually uh, affect pollution? Right, so in Illinois, we do not have um, big power plants that are going to be the big pollution. Um, so we are focusing on non-electric generating units. And so there's different tiers, there's tier one and tier two, but they are talking about the origins of these pollutions, which are these high pollution facilities. Mm -hmm. And so we need to start thinking about how do we lower that um, emission benchmark and me and my colleagues at USC have been really advocating for that. Okay, thank you, Philip, for that. Gina, going back with you, um, as we know, there's uh, concentrating industrial polluters uh, in black and brown neighborhoods. How does that affect the quality of life in the community and on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, we know communities of color are hit first and worst. Um, and we are the ones that live right next to these facilities and have been sounding the alarm for years. But now it's clear that this impacts everyone, um, even at an interstate level when it comes to smog. And so we really need to get to the root of this problem, which is fixing broken land use and zoning policies at the at the city level. We need to go micro and, and address this root problem because in my neighborhood, the southeast side, there are over 100 industries that line the Calumet River. And so we feel that cumulative burden of pollution on our health, on our food systems, on our transportation, you know, uh, economically, we're in despair here. 
And so uh, I think, you know, I think passing state legislation and city mm -hmm. ordinances to address the cumulative impacts of pollution can go a long way. Dulce, uh, is there also you think more to be done uh, about air pollution? Oh, absolutely. There's always something to be done. And I think, you know, going with what Gina has stated, in addition to that, I believe that, you know, the um, governmental agencies that have been set up to protect communities should do a better job in doing so. Um, I think from my own personal experience, they haven't done much. Um, it feels like we're always um, fighting with the air because right. we we think that these agencies are there to protect us, but sometimes it feels like they're working in conjunction with industry. Um, so in the industry gets what they want to do to continue operations, continue profiting, um, you know, from their businesses, but also at the cost of our health. And so in addition to that, I think that the um, Illinois Environmental Protection Agency, um, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency should be um, have concerted stronger efforts to really protect vulnerable communities, environmental justice communities, um, just like Waukegan just like the southeast side. So there's always, always something to do. Thank you, Dulce. And lastly, Philip, same question pretty much. We have less than 30 seconds. What else can be done? Well, you know, we have to start putting in extra time and effort for clean energy jobs for the working class. This is not just for college graduates. These are union jobs that we can pull in to not just focus on high pollution industries. And we need to train those populations too. Thank you so much. I want to thank Philip Boda, Gina Ramirez, and Dulce Ortiz for joining us today. Thank you. A line of mourners stretched for blocks in Oakland this week to pay final respects to Officer Andres Mauricio Vasquez Lasso. Last week, he was shot and killed responding to a domestic violence call. Chicago Tonight's Joanna Hernandez was at the funeral and tells us more about how he's being remembered. A sea of blue wrapped around 32-year-old Officer Andres Mauricio Vasquez Lasso. Hundreds came from near and far to pay tribute. We gather to honor our brother. We give thanks to God for the years that he allowed us to share in his life. His family and brothers in blue came together for his funeral service at St. Rita of Kasha Shrine Chapel. Andres was one of the bravest and most selfless individuals I have ever known. John Vasquez holding back tears, describing his cousin as a passionate officer who always put others first. We said farewell, but we will never forget you. We will never forget the sacrifices you made and more than anything, the memories you leave behind. Vasquez Lasso served five years with the Chicago Police Department. His commander in the 8th District, Brian Springs, says the young officer dreamed of becoming a detective one day. And he would have achieved it. Anyone who knew him noted the pride in his appearance, his professionalism, his dedication to fitness, and his passion for football. Vasquez Lasso migrated with his family to Chicago from Colombia when he was 18 years old. He went to college and at 27 years old enrolled in the police academy. His mother, Rocio, always called him my police officer and said he never stopped working to take care of, protect, and provide for his family. 
The service also held in Spanish to celebrate his roots. His wife Melina, too heartbroken to speak, held on to his family. He was such a good and courteous husband, according to Melena, that her friends teased her about how much of a gentleman he was. He also loved to salsa, often taking Melena to dance with him. On March 1st, Officer Vasquez Lasso woke up not knowing the day would be his last. A reminder, his fellow officers say, of the risks they take every day to protect Chicago. He best describes himself in this post. Behind this uniform, there's another human being just like you. This uniform doesn't make me a robot. This uniform is not a symbol of hate. This is not a symbol of us versus them. I hate injustice and lawlessness as well. That's why I became a cop. Even though my actions won't change the world, I can change the world of every person I get in contact with. And that's definitely what he did. For Latino Voices, I'm Joanna Hernandez. After the funeral, Lasso's family attended a private burial service. Up next, a nationwide shortage of asthma medication. Stay with us. Medical professionals are sounding the alarm about a shortage of medication that's used to treat people with asthma and other respiratory diseases. A major U.S. supplier to hospitals of liquid albuterol recently shut down, which has caused an ongoing shortage to get worse. Joining us now with more is Dr. Juanita Mora, medical spokesperson for the American Lung Association and an allergist immunologist based here in Chicago. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. How concerned are you about this uh, shortage? Very concerned, Alex, because when we look at the stats, we have 25 million asthmatics in the United States, 20 million adults, 5 million kids, and 24 million COPD or emphysema patients, plus all the other respiratory diseases. And we're about to head into allergic asthma season. We've had an unusually mild winter even here in Chicago. And so that means the pollen season is going to be early and long. And we are going to have a lot of asthmatics who are going right. to be needing liquid albuterol. And then, you know, we could get a bad COVID variant or we could get go back into respiratory viral disease again in the winter and not have this life-saving medication that allows people to breathe. Can you describe briefly how patients use this medication? So this medication, albuterol liquid, allows patients who have tight lungs or not able to breathe with wheezing or bad cough to have relief of that shortness of breath and get their lungs open. Mainly used by kids, especially little ones who can't really use the inhaler albuterol. It's also used by older people and very sick patients, Alex, who can't do the inhaler. They go into the hospital emergency departments, and this is what they use to get their lungs opened up. Have you already had to tell your patients about the shortage? Yes, I have, Alex. And because some mommies aren't able to find liquid albuterol, one of the moms in my clinic was actually told by her pediatrician 
that if the little girl's asthma was exacerbated, who is only five years of age, that she should go to the emergency department or hospital because there was no liquid albuterol for her to have at home. And the ER, Alex, is 30 minutes away. This mom was scared. Uh, I bet. How has, uh, have other um, patients responded to this? Well, a lot of them are concerned, and this is why, as the American Lung Association, we're hoping to reach the FDA, who actually tweeted, Alex, yesterday, that they're encouraging other pharmaceuticals to help and pitch in and produce liquid albuterol, and they're also trying to outsource this from other countries so that they meet the demand before it goes into a disaster situation. Right. Are there any alternative options, uh, doctor, to, to this kind of drug? Yes, the actual albutyl inhaler. So the albutyl inhaler is not in a shortage, which is a good thing. Okay. So making sure that patients have an up-to-date inhaler, asthma action plan, COPD asthma action plan, and they should talk to their doctors too. If they normally would use albutyl liquid, like what other alternatives they have. Doctor, um, I know the supply uh, shortage uh, has been going on since the summer, but how how is this changing things? How has this recent uh, shutdown changed things even more? Right, because Acorn basically filed bankruptcy in May of 2020. Then we went into the shortage because they downgraded production. Now we have one pharmaceutical, Nephron, supplying liquid albuterol to the whole country, Alex. And this is why it's so concerning, because okay. they cannot meet the demand. And so with all these millions of patients that might need the medication. What kind of action would you like to see um, officials actually uh, take in response to the shortage? I'm hoping that a CEO of a pharmaceutical might be touched by the stories of this asthmatics and say, we want to help. Just like they did in COVID-19, a lot of pharmaceuticals pitched in to get the vaccines rolling, to get everything, medications as well. I want them to pitch in for all these little ones all these older adults, everyone with asthma and COPD, so that we make a difference, Alex, and that we're able to save lives and not fall into a disastrous situation where people's lives are going to be at risk. Definitely. That's what we are all hoping for. Dr. Juanita Mora, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. Up next, a sneak peek at a local food pantry's new home. Stay with us. Since it first opened inside a health clinic in 2018 and moved to a former church in 2019, the Pilsen Food Pantry's offerings and ambition have only grown. Now, they've purchased a two-story building on Ashland Avenue and 21st Street that they're hoping will allow them even more room to grow uh, even further and better serve the thousands of Chicagoans who rely on them. Here's a sneak peek. We're at... 21st in Ashland, which is the site of the new Pilsen Food Pantry. Primarily, we are operate and known as a food pantry. So we currently serve about 2,000 families a month. But in addition to that, we operate a clothing thrift store. We do pro bono physical therapy. We give out donated medical access equipment. We do COVID testing, Narcan distribution, health screening. We do a number of initiatives throughout the years. We're in a deconsecrated church. 
we've been trying to purchase a building for a, a couple of years now. So we have money that we've raised already in accounts waiting for this moment. We can proceed with a lot of stuff quickly. The money that we're trying to raise is for specific things that we didn't know about. Things like moving a concrete ramp outside and things like that. Sort of unanticipated expenses. One plan is down the road to possibly put in an elevator. We would be fully ADA compliant so we can really serve anybody that we need to. You'll see on our website that we have a page to go uh, not only donate money, but also uh, uh, building supplies and time. Um, we're great with social media, so um, if you follow us on Instagram, you'll find uh, lots more information about that and where you can go donate. It's our own place. You know, it's our identity. We're not associated with a church or anybody else. People will know it for us and the services that we provide to the community. We don't have to worry about, you know, uh, stepping on the toes of a landlord or anything like that. It is our place that we're buying outright. So any of these things that we had ideas about doing, they'll actually come to fruition in this space. You can actually find more information about how to donate on our website. And just weeks before Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico last September, a valuable collection of paintings arrived in Chicago from the island. They are on a loan from, the, from an art museum in the town of Ponce on the southern coast. Now Chicago's National Museum of Puerto Rican Arts and Culture is a temporary home to a small but significant exhibit. Producer Mark Vitali visited the museum in Humboldt Park. This collection comes from Museo de Arte de Ponce, the Museum of Ponce, it's an art a museum. It's really the first uh, museum to open up in the Caribbean and the first one to get accredited back in 1959. Much of the museum remains closed following an earthquake in 2020. The thing was that they have this collection, the biggest collection in the whole Caribbean. They wanted to do something with it. They wanted to stay relevant. They wanted to uh, reach out to different places. And so they reached out to us and I said, I would love to have an art collection, an art exhibit made up of Puerto Rican artists. It is historical artwork dating as far back as the 1700s, including paintings created during Puerto Rico's colonial era. Most focus on the landscape and the people of the island. It's called nostalgia for my island. Not only will you feel nostalgic about the island if you've ever been there, but it has you dreaming, it has you thinking of different sorts of things. This exhibit deals with three issues. It deals with my people, my island, my home. These pieces as a whole have never left the island. These are pieces that we, as Puerto Ricans, we've seen in books. We may have seen pictures of them, but we have never really seen them in person. And so for us to have this collection here is just a remarkable thing. The museum in Humboldt Park upgraded its galleries to secure and protect these rare works, most of which were painted in oil. We met a volunteer who's also an artist, and he grew up in the town of Ponce. It is really emotional. It's the first time that we have this type of exhibition like this in, in Chicago, in the U.S. And I know that a lot of people are gonna, definitely going to be super proud to be able to see. A lot of people, they never had the opportunity to go to the museum in Ponce, that be able to see this work here, they will be overwhelmed for a lot of people, but it would be great. You see something different in every piece. Something that did not make it out of Puerto Rico before the hurricane 
most of the catalogs for the exhibition remain on the island. What I want people to take away is that there's a history behind the Puerto Rican people. Yes, we are American citizens, but you should also take a look at who we are. Puerto Ricans are one-third Spaniard, one-third African, and one-third Taino Indian. This exhibit explains exactly who we are as Puerto Ricans. For Chicago Tonight Latino Voices, this is Mark Vitale. The exhibition is called Nostalgia for My Island. It's at the National Museum of Puerto Rican Arts and Culture in Humboldt Park until June, so you have time. Back to wrap things up right after this. That's going to be our show for this weekend. Be sure to visit our website, wttw.com news for the very latest from WTTW News. While you're there, make sure to check out our guide to voting early in the Chicago runoff elections for mayor and city council. And if you're watching us on Saturday night, know that you can also catch Latino Voices and Black Voices on Sundays beginning at 10 p.m. Now for all of us. Uh, here at Chicago tonight, Latino Voices, thank you for joining us. And don't forget also to tune in to Noticias Univision Chicago every weekday morning. I'll be waiting for you. Thank you so much. Have an awesome weekend. Be safe. Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a personal injury law firm dedicated to preserving the dignity and rights of all individuals.